Hi everybody, I'm Dr. Jennifer Flippo and this is Flip the Script. Today's podcast was really life-changing for me. We veered away from a child health focus a little bit, but I wanted to share this with all of you because it's just so important. I had the opportunity to see firsthand the good that people are doing right there in their own backyard. I was just overflowing with hope when I left after doing this recording, and I can't wait for y'all to hear what they're all doing. We had such a great visit on this podcast that we want to bring it to you in two episodes, and this is part one. So here's some information about today's guest, Jared Slack. Jared is the Director of Relationships and Giving with the Other Ones Foundation. It's an Austin-based nonprofit on a mission to build a better future where all people experience the power of shelter, opportunity, and support. Before coming to the Other Ones Foundation, Jared served in various roles in his local church, in higher education, and at a children's home. These are all places where he saw the complexity of the human experience and the various social determinants contributing to long-term human thriving. Jared is a big picture thinker and he's got a bent towards being creative. And above all, Jared believes in the power of relationships that bring change. When he isn't working nonstop to combat the challenges of those dealing with being unhoused, Jared loves fly fishing, hunting for antiques, hosting dinner parties, and making the world just a little bit better every day. Meet Jared Slack. Jared, thank you so much for allowing me to come and for being on the podcast today. Uh, we are coming to you live from the Other Ones Foundation here in Austin, Texas, and I'm here at the office with Jared, and thanks so much. I'm so yeah, glad you're here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, my name is Jared Slack, and I'm the Director of Relationships and Giving here at the Other Ones Foundation, so appreciate you having me on. Oh, I'm, I'm so glad you're here. Um, for those of y'all listening, I've had a little walkthrough, and we'll talk about the uh, organization a little bit. Um, but it's it's been it's been great so far. Okay, Jared, tell me about you. I want to hear your story and tell me how you got here. Yeah, so uh, you know I'm a good good East Texas boy, born in the country. Um, product of uh, I'm actually mixed race. My mom's Hispanic. My dad's a white guy. You know, good East Texas redneck kind of situation. <laughs> um, but yeah, born and raised in a small town. Uh, the kind of situation for me was. Do you want to give a shout out to your town? Yeah, Lufkin, Texas. Lufkin, nice. Yeah, it's a really great community. It's you know, it's small. It's cloistered a little bit behind pine trees and all those kinds of things. So I had that kind of idyllic childhood, um, and you know, for me, I was raised in an area of our town where like I had all of my immediate family within like one square mile radius. Oh wow. So I'm like the product of that. I'm the product of like this sense of closeness. Um, but also too, at the same time, like at an early age, I knew that I wanted to leave. And so like now here I am 38 and I'm literally the only person in my family that doesn't live in my hometown. Um, and so, but that's just kind of how I've always been. I've been geared to this, like to, to this orientation to the bigger, things out there in the world that's kind of how I've always been like wired I guess um so yeah born and raised in East Texas as soon as I turned 18 I went to um 
a private small Baptist college in a small town uh, called Bel uh, University of Mary Hardin Baylor in Belton, Texas. And, and for me at that moment, um, I was pursuing a career in ministry. I went to an undergrad to study theology, philosophy, all these things. And it was in college when I had like um, a lot of experiences that really changed me. And, you know, when it comes to spirituality for kids and for myself as a teenager, like spirituality is, is really bent towards certainty, like having everything nailed down. And then before we send you out into the real world, you have it all nailed down because the real world is going to try and pull you in. And so you have to keep it on lock. And so I went to college, like, ready, prepared, you know, <laughs> with this arsenal of, like, certainty and, like, whatever. With your armor in yeah. place. But then, like, actual life happened. You know, my best friend from high school was killed in a drunk driving accident. And I had no way, no framework for understanding how something like that could happen. You know, like... Is it design? Is it free will? Is it whatever? How can a benevolent creator of anything, you know, let something like this happen? And I know this happens to so many other people, but for me, it was really catastrophic. How old were you when that happened? I was 19. Okay. <clears throat> and it was, there's a lot of things that went into that. But anyway, so like college became like a time of, you know, and I know it's a hard word for a lot of um, evangelicals mostly in our world, but this idea of deconstruction. Like, I was in a place where, like, I needed to deconstruct some of these things. And so college was a time for me to, to, to learn and adapt within still the framework of I'm going to be a minister. And so a lot of changing and shifting, but still stayed on this trajectory of I'm going to be a minister. Um, so I went to college, graduated, went to seminary after that, um, was working in churches as a youth minister, as all these different things, um, all through seminary. And then again, another kind of, like, altering experience happened and that was whenever I um, started working at a children's home in town you know I a lot of seminary students would seek out like church ministry positions or whatever and I didn't really want to do that um, I wanted to just attend church um, at the time so I found this children's home and was like I can go work in counseling there or like be like a supervisor for children but when I arrived they were like um we really need a chaplain here and so I was like, well, I'm in seminary, you know, and they already had some chaplains, but we're needing something. So I started working there as a chaplain and just kind of fell into my lap. And again, that moment was this time in my own life to recognize, like, the catastrophic difference in my upbringing whenever I would learn the stories of some of these middle schoolers, high schoolers. And it's just catastrophically different than mine. And so that, again, was another shift, another change in me about, like, who am I going to be as a minister and how am I going to try and talk about what the church is for and why we have this thing. Um, and so anyways. Do you mean a difference in that you had Ward and June Cleaver yes. kind of thing? Yeah, Ward and, and June Cleaver kind of understanding of church and that everybody was on equal footing and everybody had the same kind of opportunities that I did. And, you know, everybody was coming from um, a home where people cared about them. I mean, that's just, that's even the most simplistic version of it. I mean, I would even say like the blown up image of, you know, two parents and 2.5 children mm -hmm. kind of reality, you know, and, but then you hear these stories from these young people, you know, and here I am working with them on their like life and like talking about their spirituality. Um, and you see that like the barrier is not the person, the barrier is the context that they're in that's the barrier to this experience of self, you know? 
And so that again, it began to change things for me. And it really kind of like forced me to come to terms with like, and I'm going to use the P word and it's really hard for, for people to hear the P word, but privilege, like it is privilege, you know, I had the privilege of growing up in the context that I got to grow. I mean, and I don't mean that to say that privilege, I mean, I do mean it. Privilege is a thing we have to own, but like it was an honor to be it's, raised in that context. It's interesting you say privilege because I've talked to several um, sort of Gen Z and, and that's going to be our focus today, but I've talked to several of them about how they have said to me when they're trying to find their way in the world and they say, I should be grateful for everything I have. And I know, so they feel lost, but then they say, they feel guilty. I should be grateful. And I said, can we get the gratitude like off the table just for a minute? Yeah. Because it is clouding your personal growth and vision because you're, someone has told you over and over again how you have privilege. And and I agree with you that we well, must it's like own my mom that, and I was a little kid saying, you should be grateful for these green beans because there's kids in, in who the are world starving who are in China. starving. Right. And it's like forced into That's that kind of a conversation. The trope that all of our it's parents have given us. You know, and it's just like, you need to be grateful for what you've got because others don't have it. And like, that's a truth, but at the end of the day, like it's shame, so much negativity. Like what we know, what we know is shame is not the kind of emotion and that pushes one forward. <laughs> no, you know, and so like we can talk about the honor that we have and the luck that we have for what we've been. I mean, I'm be honest, been born into. We can be honest about that. We don't have to hold shame into it. We can, and instead, what I would say, we can use the honor of our privilege. To have that be a beacon to say, this is what all people should get to experience. All people should have the honor of experiencing a life at the youngest age where all their basic needs are met. And I mean the basic needs like in the whole self kind of way, you know? And so back to kind of how I got here, like I just kept kind of pursuing places in my life where I could continue to expand my understanding of why I'm existing in this world and why the places that I'm working in exist themselves, you know, and that's just my wiring, you know, and like, and I struggle with this, you know, I, I see my therapist all the time and I ask her these questions like, why do I have to make everything matter so much? You know, <laughs> why am I the kind of person that has to like seek out these spaces that are hard and big and, you know, and I just have always pursued that and always gone to these places where I felt like, this is an exacerbating need in our world, and for some reason, I don't have anything in me that allows me not to step in there, you know? So what does he or she reply to you when you ask that question? <laughs> Why am I here? <laughs> well, I think it kind of goes back to the privilege thing. For me, you know, as I've owned this part of myself, like, I have the luxury of looking like a white guy. But I also have the experience of being raised in the context of a Hispanic family. And, but the, the reality of it is, is like in my whole life, and like the church is a great place for this, honestly. But even like school is or other civic organizations or whatever it is, like a bright, enthusiastic, well-spoken white guy can do just about anything. You're right. You're right. You know what I'm saying? And so, like, there's never been a microphone. There's never been a stage. There's never been an audience that has ever questioned why I'm talking. Wow. That's... 
that's really interesting food for thought and so true. You know what I'm saying? And so and like, you, you're probably always welcome. Always welcome. Or welcomed. at least permitted. And even I'm if never, not and a lot of times I'm never, there's no worry that whatever's going to come out of my mouth is going to make that whoever's receiving it uncomfortable because there's the assumption, oh, you're coming. Okay. We're on the same page here. He's a pleasant white guy. He's a pleasant white guy. Interesting. And so, and the thing is, is like, I am a really nice guy, but I'm also like pretty full throttle on my belief that the world deserves to be changed. Like it, our communities deserve to be changed. And I am not here to keep the status quo on anything because the status quo isn't serving all of us. It's serving some of us. It has served me incredibly well, but I have to open my eyes and see that it's just not serving everybody else in the same way that it's serving me. And that's a hard realization to make because many of us don't want to do anything that undermines our own status in the world. Well, it sounds like you you, are, you, you had a realization of the, the fortune of being a well-spoken white guy and that you're translating that into service. And then what do you do as a well-spoken white guy in the context of the church? You just keep pursuing the, the next pulpit, the next pulpit, the and next pulpit. And there's kind of a lot of you Yeah, and there's there. a lot of us out there. <laughs> and some of us are dangerous, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And so... Yeah, and so for me, like, I kept kind of pursuing this and kept kind of staying in this kind of confines, and for me, comfort of church, because I knew I could be successful there. I knew that this is just, this is, this is the path for someone like me. I have every skill needed for it, and I can go. And so then at some point, you know, long story short, I ended up here in Austin, Texas, working at First Baptist here in downtown. Um, and the question that all churches are asking right now, specifically in the midst of this pandemic, where it's revealing all these social inequities, the question is, is like, well, what are we going to do? Because like we're a church, we can't just like meet on Sundays anymore. Like people, the jig's up on that reality. Like people are beginning to call us out on that. Like mm-hmm. you can't just meet on Sundays and not do anything like the other six days of the week that like actually are helping the community you're in. Mm-hmm. And anyways, it's First Baptist downtown. And like you look outside, like there's a homeless person sleeping right there on the steps and like this is going to be crass but like they're not just sleeping there they're going to the bathroom there right they're living here and so like it's right here we don't have a choice this is the mandate this is the world that we exist in and this is the time we exist in and so we have to think about what does it look like for us to be a community and care for the people that are around us and how can we continue to be this community of faith out to do something and so for me it just about six years ago, I began to learn everything I possibly could about homelessness, about like what's happening in our city, what's causing this, all the things in my own brain that I had heard, like that homeless persons are lazy, all these tropes and stereotypes, and just began to investigate. And you become to you come to realize like like I'm coming at this from like a spiritual person, a pastor, but every answer that I've been given around why like homelessness exists is based in like a, a character flaw. They're lazy. They, they're addicted to drugs. And it's like, as, as you begin to look at it, it's like, it's not a character. It can't be just a character flaw. Because like, and this is, this is just me being honest. And I'm going to use a bad word. And I apologize if people will be offended by that. But there are a lot of assholes who live in mansions. Oh, 100, 100%. You know what I'm saying? So like, you can't point to the character flaw and say, that's the reason why the person's not housed. That's the reason why the person's experiencing homelessness. You know, like when we started this community here, 
uh, began to work this community here, there are 200 people living in tents and makeshift shelters. So we, we deployed social workers on site and began to do critical interviews, asking about like needs, crisis things, like what are the services that we need for you, like mental health services. These are things that people said, drug use disorder services, mental health services, um, um, like counseling with partnerships, um, just all these litany of things that these persons are expressing, like we need access to these kinds of supportive services. But like the thing is, is like, I kind of want to do the same assessment interview with people who live on the west side of our town in gated communities. I Mm want to go in there and ask the questions like who's struggling with depression here? Mm -hmm. Who has a drug use disorder around here? Mm -hmm. Who's having a bad relationship with their partner? Who's, Who's disconnected from their family? Who's feeling alone over here? And the thing is, is you see like, oh, snap. We all experience those things. Right. And they have a hot shower and they they can shop at Central Market, but that doesn't change what's bouncing around in their brain, in their, their social, emotional health. And so for me, like I just began to see like, there's so much more space here. And for me too, it's like the church began to feel really confining to me, you know, like it's a limited space of people to talk to about these issues. And also too, you're dealing with the reality that like, well, this church has been around for 150 years. Like, what am I going to do in this like year that I'm here with them to change the course of this massive ship that's that's been going forever. But then you realize like and then like the pulpit felt really confining. You know, like I'm just limited here. But now it's like and so anyways, back to how I came here, I kind of became known as this pastor in town who would talk about homelessness. And we kind of get up and throw some Jesus down, but also like really get to the critical realities of like what homelessness is doing to us as a society and all those kinds of things. And it was one day I was speaking at an HOA up North Austin. And, you know, the sad thing is like a homeless person had been seen in this really ritzy neighborhood. And so everybody freaked out. And so they called an HOA meeting and they had people from the, (laughs) from like, they had me and like the city council members and like people coming to like address this neighborhood and like try to answer their questions because everybody's so scared and upset and like I had my list of things that I wanted to talk through just about like guys you know human to human stuff this is what this is did they ask you to speak as the homeless guru a little bit but they had others to do that too and so there was at that same meeting that our executive director Chris Baker was there and he gets up and starts talking and I'm just like this is fire this dude is amazing Mm -hmm. everything he's saying you know, and the first time we met, I was like, were you like a youth minister back in the day? He's like, no, nah, dude, I ain't been in a church and whatever. But like, there was a sense of like, same, same, same. Right. We are the same, you know, um, just different paths, but we're the same here. We talk about things the same way. And so like, we just connected up. We began to do a lot of like, um, partnering with my congregation and his organization. And then before long, Chris called me up and was like, hey, dude, we need we need a preacher like you. We need somebody who can come and work at our organization and spread our message, tell people about who we are, what we're doing. And in, 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 a, in essence, build a congregation, you know, because any nonprofit, like, you run on your community. You are, you exist because your community is is bought into your mission and willing to sacrifice personally for that. And the thing is, like, I go into this spiel and I'll, I'll keep it short, but like philanthropy is based in two Latin words put together. Philo, this notion of kinship, brotherliness, sisterliness, kinship, sibling notion, and anthro. So this brotherly love reality, philo, matched up with anthro, which is people. So philanthropy is action based in a love of others. Like what greater message is there that. in the that's, world? That's great. That's... And the thing is, is like, that's a formative message. 
living a life oriented towards love of others, living like that, that will change you profoundly when you have this other's orientation. And the thing is, like, that's gospel, but that's just human, you know? And, like, that's where I want to, that's where I get into, like, this is the spiritual movement that's happening in this world. This notion of the highest calling of all of us. And this is, I mean, I believe this. The highest calling of every single person is calling towards neighborliness. This oh, I living... think people have forgotten how, in our egocentric world, how that that really does serve your spiritual growth, not just on Sunday or Wednesday night or whatever, whatever. but we're all so focused on... I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I fully believe in, in self-care and taking your quiet moments and things like that. But um, you can't just do it because your kid needs National Honor Society service hours. Yes. And I'm speaking to my own personal children. Who, same to me, though. Who could not stand doing those because they felt like it was box checking and because someone thought, oh, children need to be told to do this. And I think it's it's interesting to hear you say that and... and I, I love sort of the the other's concept where you don't have to revisit each and every different, you know, religious tenets just saying, remember, this is what we do in the church. This is just how we should be living our lives, thinking of others. And I like the neighborly concept because uh, it, it, it connects back to belonging, which if you're, anyone's a follower of Brene Brown, like I am, she, that's the focus of, of humanity is belonging and everyone needs that sense in, in whatever microcosm they're in. And I think too, like I, belonging is a big thing for me. So I talk a lot with people about the three B's of community. And so it's belief, belonging, behavior. And I always put them in a different order every time I list them, because my question to people is, is what order would you put it in? Belief, belonging, behavior. Like when it comes to human spirituality, belong being part of a community, what comes first? So like, you think about, like, let's think about persons experiencing homelessness, the experience of belief belonging behavior, because the notion is we want, we're hoping that in coming into this community, that there's behavior changes that happen. You know, and a lot of times communities will get those bees out of order. They'll say, well, no, 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 you gotta get the behavior thing down first. Or if you don't believe, you're not welcome. Or if you don't believe, you're not welcome. But what if it's, we begin with belonging, you are radically accepted, no matter, I don't care what you've done, like just because you're breathing, you belong, that's the only qualification there is. Just because, you, just because you're breathing, you deserve, and this is our mission, I'll say what our mission is. We are on a mission to build a future where all people get to experience the transformational power of shelter, opportunity, and support. And so, the, the the access to those three things, and this is where it gets all you know messed up in this question about homelessness, is what we know that every single human being in this world is the product of their reliable access to those three things, just like I was. Yes. You know? Yes, for sure. And so, but the question is, is like persons experiencing homelessness are not experiencing those three things. They are not experiencing the full power of what community life is having access to shelter, opportunity, and support. And so much of what happens around homelessness is to say, you gotta get your behavior fixed first, then we'll let you in, and then you can And whatever. maybe if you have the beliefs, we'll yes. then accept you so you may belong. Yes, but instead, what if you began with belonging, radical, radical belonging, and then it's based in that belonging that the person begins to have new beliefs about themselves. 
because of this experience of belonging. And then it's those beliefs that can change behaviors. Or it could be, and this is my, this is where I go, or it could be that belonging happens. And because of that belonging, well, these people radically love me. I'm going to, you know what? These are the kind of people that I'm willing to adapt to. They love me so much. I want to be here. So I'll, I'll change some behaviors here. You know, and then those behaviors begin to turn into beliefs about self. Because what if the, the belonging happens and the behavior aspect of it is like, you know what? Yeah, like, I'm going to stop, you know, drinking a six-pack of beer every morning. Maybe I'm going to go to just one beer in the morning. But that's a behavior modification that is leading towards a belief that I deserve to reduce the harm I'm inflicting upon myself every day. That's a belief reality. And you can't get to that point unless the person experiences extreme belonging, extreme kinship. Um, so, yeah, like, I know that was a really long answer to that first question, but we meandered a lot of different ways. No, but now here did. I am. And, and, but here I am. I'm the, the lead fundraiser for our organization, you know, building out a community of support for us and spreading our mission. Right. No, I, I, I love it. I, I'm so I'm so grateful for that. Wow, right? We had such a fantastic conversation about belonging and hope. And we will continue this in our next episode where we'll hear more about the transformations that Jared and his team are making in people's lives. Consider making a donation to this organization should you feel led. And look for the link to the Other Ones Foundation in the show notes. And we hope that you will catch part two with Jared. Until then, keep flipping the script. Thank you.